God is doing some neat stuff in this place. One of the signs of health in a local congregation is workers for God's kingdom being identified, trained, raised up, and sent out. And that's happening here in increasing levels, and we just give God all the thanks. Well, if God's word is truly God's word, and we have it on pretty good authority that it is, then we should take its message at face value. And if we take its message at faith value, we eventually come to the liberating recognition that we don't find fulfillment in life by seeking fulfillment. And we don't find fulfillment by demanding that others somehow provide it for us because they can't do that. Instead, we're surprised by fulfillment. We discover fulfillment while we seek to fulfill God's mandate to take his good news to people everywhere. So when we hold an annual missions month, don't think about missions month as <coughs> solely focusing on what we can and should be doing for others. Remind yourself as you engage God's mission, incredible things are going to happen to you. Involvement in missions is really enlightened self-interest. Now, our first two weekends of Missions Month, we were reminded of two things. First of all, Pastor Glenn reminded us that we are involved in an intense, unfolding spiritual conflict to usher in the kingdom of God. And everyone has a role to play in that conflict. There's no neutral place. There's no spiritual version of Switzerland. You're either working for the Lord or you're working against the Lord. Last weekend, we were reminded that if we embrace our role, whatever it is, and join our engagement with the engagement of others, God can do incredible things beyond our imagination. I just wept from my seat last weekend as, as John Stumbo told us how God has taken our prayers and our gifts and our going and translated it into his kingdom around the world. When I think of the Alliance Church in Vietnam being over one million people in a place where seven or eight of our messengers were martyred, but now today over a million believers training their own leaders, serving the Lord. If you take your role, join with others, you will be shocked at what God can do. Now this weekend, I want to give you a third reminder. And toward that end, I want to read the earliest New Testament account of a local congregation that recognized and embraced God's call upon two of its pastoral staff members. The congregation was in the ancient city of Antioch, and the story is recorded in the book of Acts. It opens like this in Acts 13. While they, the believers in Antioch, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. 
I've entitled today's teaching, While They Were Worshiping. While they were worshiping. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, enable me to translate your heart into human words. And by your Holy Spirit, enable each of us to hear the beat of your heart so that we can translate it into transformed lives, ours and the lives of others. And as always, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for the voice of God's Spirit to our hearts today, in this moment, may the Lord be with you. The Bible instructs believing parents to train their children in God's truth. My dad was a first-generation believer, the first in his family to know Jesus. He came from a totally secular background. And so he took the commandments of God very seriously, including that one to train your children in the ways of faith. And as a result of that, he raised his children in an Alliance church, an Alliance church where teaching about missions and God's heart for lost people everywhere was as common as potholes in the spring in Pittsburgh <laughs> or selfies on Facebook. And being raised in that kind of environment was an awesome thing. It was a good thing. But I subsequently learned it can also be a very dangerous thing. And here's why. Familiar words can become formidable barriers to the very values and actions that they were meant to produce. Why? Because talking about something, especially if we do it passionately and repeatedly, can over time lead us to believe that we're actually doing what we're talking about. And once we fall under the spell of that deception, our words can become substitutes for action. And we end up talking where we aren't walking. And then ultimately our words become indictments against us rather than incentives to us. Now let me give you a cultural example of this dynamic. In our culture, there are ongoing, passionate conversations about the plight of the poor in our city, in our nation, and in our world. You hear those every day. But safe to say those impassioned pronouncements don't always translate into actions that change the realities of the poor. Sometimes those impassioned words are a substitute for actually doing something. Other times they're something worse. They're what we now call virtue signaling an indication that the speaker has taken his or her place among the noble and the compassionate and the enlightened. And when they're at their very worst, those passionate words sometimes serve to mask selfish, greedy agendas that will ensure that the poor stay poor while we talk about their plight. Now, let me give you a practical illustration this coming Halloween. In the midst of all of our national conversations about poverty, children going to bed hungry, 
our nation will pause for a few days and spend $9 billion on Halloween decorations, candy, and costumes for ourselves and for our pets. Last year, Americans spent more on Halloween costumes for their pets than the body of Christ in the United States spent on missions for a full year. So safe to say, if that $9 billion were used wisely, it could remove a sizable chunk of the poverty that we talk about. So our actions and our words aren't always in harmony. Sometimes they're a study in contrast. Nobody knows that better than God because he's been around longer than any of us and he's seen it again and again. And that's why scripture repeatedly reminds us that our tendency to use words as substitutes for action doesn't automatically stop when we walk through the church door. That tendency can take a seat in the sanctuary where it actually hopes to be reinforced. Now, I know that's a strong statement, but Jesus said as much, especially in his conversations with the Pharisees, the religious devout of his day. And Jesus was just echoing something the prophet Isaiah had said many, many centuries earlier through the prophet Isaiah, God told <coughs> Isaiah's contemporaries that they substituted the words of their lips for obedience in their lives. That they praised God with their lips, but they didn't honor him with their lives. They made the place of worship a place where they hid from obeying God. The Pharisees generations later prided themselves on how often they quoted God's word, defended God's word, proclaimed God's word, but they failed to obey God's word. Unless you think that as new covenant believers we're above something like that, I would remind you Jesus repeatedly warned his disciples about what he called the leaven, the influence of the Pharisees. Pharisee thinking can visit any of our houses. Now, given our tendency to use words as substitutes for action, it should come as no surprise that words about missions often replace actual missions activities. In the average American church that claims to be faithful to the gospel, less than 2% of their annual giving is set apart for missions, for the central assignment, for the primary assignment of the church, less than 2%. Now, because of your understanding and maturity here at ACAC, that's over 17% of every dollar that comes in. And even within our missions-focused alliance network, the last study indicated nearly half of the men and women that worship in our mission-focused churches give nothing annually to the central mission of the church. Now, when you think that Jesus said your heart follows your giving, what does that tell you about folks' hearts? While they're saying lots of words about missions. Now, the gap between words about missions and actually engaging missions isn't going to be solved by even more words, no matter how compelling they are. And it won't be solved by increased use of graphic video images and carefully 
selected muses. Those things can effectively communicate, but they won't solve the problem. I want to remind you that full engagement in God's mission requires more than words and images that move the heart. It requires a church that's healthy enough to recognize and respond to the move of the Holy Spirit, a church like that one in first century Antioch. Now, how does the church get to that point? As is usually the case in Scripture, God has provided the answer in the text. It doesn't jump out at you, but it's there. You see, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to open his account with these four words, while they were worshiping. Say them with me. While they were worshiping. Luke wasn't just setting the stage. He was alerting us to a strategic connection. He was reminding us there is an essential connection between corporate worship and missions engagement. Now, before we unpack why that's the case, let me give you a working definition for worship in general and then one for corporate worship. Worship is the ordering of our lives around God and his purposes. Because Paul made it clear in Romans 12 Every aspect of our life is to be an expression of our worship to God. So it's the ordering of your life around God and God's purposes. It involves opening your heart to God's love, submitting your mind to God's truth, aligning your thoughts and your emotions and your priorities and your desires with God's character, and submitting your will to God's purposes, all of life is an act of worship. Corporate worship is a very specific, a more narrowly defined activity within lifestyle worship. Corporate worship is gathering in community to honor God. Gathering in community to honor God. It involves several things according to scripture, declaring God's word, praising God and giving him thanks through music and the arts and singing, corporate prayer, shared ministry, and then the manifestations of God's Spirit. Now that's the type of worship that Luke was referring to when he said, while they were worshiping. And that was the type of worship that was unfolding when the Spirit knew that God wanted Barnabas and Saul set apart and sent out. So Luke's words do more than describe the setting. They signal the essential connection between corporate worship and engagement and missions. Now, how does that connection work? Let me give you some suggestions. First of all, worship fuels our love for God. Now, you know that Jesus, <clears throat> when asked what is the greatest commandment, said the greatest commandment is what? Love God with the totality of your being. Because everything else flows out of that. What we sometimes forget is that Jesus also made it clear that love for God is the beginning point for missions engagement. Because missions flows out of love for God, not love for people. I, I think we're all tempted to think that if somebody agrees to relocate to a different culture, 
perhaps even a dangerous cultural setting, to share God's truth with people, it's because they love people. No, it's because they love God. Missions flows out of holiness, not humanism or humanitarianism. That's why when Jesus was commissioning Peter for his engagement in building the kingdom, he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? He never said, Peter, do you love folks? Because I want you to serve them. No, no. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Now, I, I hope you know he asked him three times, not because Peter was dense or Jesus was forgetful, but because Peter had denied Jesus three times and Jesus was graciously walking him back and undoing that. But the emphasis was, do you love me? See, Peter was going to face persecution, martyrdom, hardship. Love for people won't keep you going <laughs> when you face those things. Because the people you love, some of them are going to reject you. Some of them are going to hate you. Some of them are going to persecute you. And some might want to murder you. It's love for God that keeps you engaged. See, if your foundation is love for people, people can disappoint you. People can be apathetic about you. People can betray you. People can hate you. People can ignore you. But if your foundation is love for God, he never changes. And he never fails. So even if you're in a cultural setting where most of the people don't want to hear the truth that you're sharing, you can keep on going because of your love for God. That's the starting point of missions. All that to say, when a church isn't producing people for the missionary cause, it's an indictment on that church's love for God. A congregation that loves God will be sending people out because they go together. Secondly, worship nurtures trust in God. Because in worship, what do we do? We review God's resume. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> we remind ourselves that he gave Abraham a son in his old age. He promoted Joseph from the prison to the palace. He opened the Red Sea when everything seemed to be lost. He provided water from a rock in the wilderness for mil millions of people. He preserved three Hebrew teenagers in a blazing furnace. They're waiting for us to talk about them in a few weeks. He closed the mouths of lions in the company of Daniel. He raised Jesus from the grave. When you remind yourselves of his resume, that ignites your faith. Then you're able to trust God when the going gets tough. And in missions, the going always gets tough. Because again, it's spiritual warfare. It's the conflict for God's kingdom. Third, worship brings a release of God's power. You see that pattern all throughout Scripture. Where people are worshiping authentically, there is quickly a release of the power of God. And in missions, that's indispensable because missions is not simply sharing information with people who haven't received it. Missions is a power encounter between the power of God and his gospel and the power of principalities and spiritual forces of darkness that want to hold people in hopelessness, despair, and ignorance. You can't do missions without the power of God. Without the power of God, it's like throwing peas at a tank. Good luck with that. Fourth, worship shifts our focus away from self. 
and self-interest and what's in it for me. And it shifts our focus towards God and his interests. Look, we live in a narcissistic culture. Everybody knows that. The founders of Facebook freely admitted that theirs is an enterprise based on the foundation of American narcissism. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. And that narcissism reflects and fuels and appeals to humanity's stubborn pride and our desire for self-rule. Now, when you live in a culture like this, that narcissism can quickly seduce your soul. It can short-circuit the humility and the other focus rather than self-centeredness that is necessary for missions. Worship reminds us that we exist for a higher purpose than self-gratification. Fifth, worship increases our ability to discern the leading of the Spirit. Because when we gather in corporate worship, God is training our senses to discern his voice. To be able to recognize his voice out of the myriad of voices that appeal to us for our attention, for our focus, and for our loyalty. Hebrews says we train our senses through what? Practice. Practice. You may not always walk away from corporate worship with a definite checklist of here's what God taught me today, here's how God changed me today, here's how God transformed me today, but repeated immersion in the experience of corporate worship trains your senses to recognize the voice of God. Did you notice in the account of the Antioch church, everybody in the church heard the Spirit's voice. Now, there's no indication the Spirit spoke audibly. If he had been speaking audibly, the sound system probably would have been down that day and it wouldn't have mattered. No, it was the Spirit bearing witness with their spirit, the same way the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. They knew his voice. My sheep know my voice, Jesus said. Corporate worship trains you to discern that voice. I often have people say, Pastor, how can you know when God's leading? Train, train, train. You might as well ask me, how can I run the next Pittsburgh Marathon? Well, I wouldn't say, buy some hot shorts and, <laughs> you know, shell out a couple hundred bucks for the best running shoes and you're, you're hooked up, you're good to go. Now, you want to run the next marathon, what do you have to do? Train. Train. And you don't start by saying, first day I'll do 20 miles. Because then there is no second day. <laughs> That's when you find out what your deductible is. <laughs> you, you have to train yourself. Okay? Uh, same way you have to train yourself to discern the Spirit's voice. And you do it in corporate worship. It's not the only way, but it is a powerful way. Because the big things God wants to do for us, he does in community, not in secret. And finally, worship produces conviction of sin. Okay, what's that got to do with missions? A lot. 
Because if missions is about moving in the power of God, what compromises moving in the power of God? Sin in our life. So we have to deal with it. Before we can deal with it, we have to be what? Aware of it. And sometimes we aren't aware. Sometimes we simply don't see. Sometimes we really don't want to see. But we have to be aware before we can deal with it. And if we're hosting sin in our life while we're trying to do mission, that's like trying to engage MMA with one hand tied behind your back. And it's just not going to work. Now, Isaiah discovered that. You may remember at a critical time in his nation's history when he was concerned about the future, God gave him a vision of the throne room of the universe. He saw God seated upon the throne. And in that vision, nobody said a word about sin. Not a word. But as Isaiah saw the majesty of God, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. See, he had just been on social media. (laughs) He was immediately aware of his sin, not because somebody nailed him on it. When he saw the glory of God, he saw his own pettiness, his own selfishness in contrast. See, the best conviction doesn't come from somebody backing up the truck and trying to shame you. Shame is not conviction. Conviction moves you to response. Shame just leaves you with four flat tires. God isn't about shaming. He's about convicting. There's a big difference. Conviction occurs when we focus on the majesty of God in worship. So we sing about his faithfulness, and it makes us aware, I'm not always faithful. We sing about his grace, and in contrast, we realize, you know, this week I wasn't really too gracious. We sing about his forgiveness, and in contrast, we realize, I'm still holding on to that. We sing about his healing, and and then we realize, I've been fighting that healing because I've sort of made my disease my identity. The best conviction comes in contrast, and the contrast is seen when we worship. Now, once Isaiah saw his sin and confessed it, God immediately said, I need somebody to go for me. And what did Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. God didn't call him by name. He volunteered. And here's the final reason why Corporate worship is vital for missions because we become like the object of our worship. We become like the object of our worship. It's unavoidable. Whatever you worship, you're becoming like that thing. So if you worship at the shrine of materialism, what are you becoming? If you worship at the shrine of pornography, what are you becoming? If you worship at the shrine of self-importance, what are you becoming? 
if you worship at the shrine of control, what are you becoming? We become like the object of our worship. So if we worship God, his compassion, his love, his sacrificial commitment to lost people, it'll emerge in us. We start to look like our dad. I'm getting old enough, my children are old enough, once in a while they'll look at me the way I'm sitting at the house or something I'm doing and they'll just go, oh, it's grandpa. <laughs> and they don't mean me, they mean my dad. Oh, that's like looking at grandpa all over again. Because if we have a good relationship with our dad, we sort of start to look like him, don't we? find ourselves saying things the way he said it or doing things the way he did it. Well, when you worship God, you start to look like your heavenly father. Start taking on his characteristics because you're reminding yourself of them all the time. You know, in Europe, there are lots of spectacular fountains, and many of them depict human figures carved carefully out of stone and there's water flowing from the lips, the mouths of those carved figures, day and night, night and day, in some cases for centuries. The irony is they've never tasted that water once because they don't have the potential to. And I think about that when I think about the words we speak, the words that flow through our lips concerning missions, are we tasting them? Or are they just flowing through because it's the right thing to do? Are they changing us? Are they changing our priorities? Are they changing our outlook? Are they changing our commitment? The church in Antioch reminds us if we don't want to speak things we've never tasted, if we don't want to talk where we're not walking, then we need to make corporate worship a strategic exercise. It won't make us totally immune to empty words, but it will certainly beef up our immune system. I want to shift gears suddenly in the last minute and just share a final word. I couldn't work it in neatly, so I'll just work it in abruptly. There are few beings in this universe that know the vital connection between corporate worship and missions better than Satan. Because the Old Testament and New Testament references to him lead us to believe, I think accurately, that before his fall, before he got full of himself, he actually led worship in heaven. In fact, there is indication he may have been the primary worship leader in heaven which placed him right next to the throne where he entertained the thought, I could do that and I could do it better than he's doing it. <laughs> Satan lost that. But he didn't lose the awareness of the power connection between worship and mission. So what does he do in the church? Well, he can't stop us from worshiping entirely. But what he often does is he encourages us to make worship a battlefield within the church rather than a place where we prepare for battle with those who aren't yet a part of God's church. 
In other words, rather than using worship to prepare to reach lost people, we fight each other over the songs that were sung or not sung. Too old, too new, too long, too short, too loud, too soft. Didn't care for the style. Don't particularly care for that singer. Uh, there are worship leaders I like better. The graphics could have been a little different. Went on too long. Ah, I wish we could have just gone on forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then some send anonymous notes with their complaints. I got one recently signed by somebody who identified themselves as, you'll love this, a mature believer. And I thought, honey, if you were a mature believer, you wouldn't be writing anonymous letters. You would have the courage of your conviction. And you would trust me that I'm not going to hate you because you have a criticism. See? But let me remind you, criticism is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> so, some, people, some people exercise it as if that's their primary gift. What goes on here is not entertainment. See, that's the problem. We are an entertainment-saturated culture. Christians come to church to be entertained, and they end up being spiritual pygmies who are still in diapers 50 years after they entered the kingdom. This isn't entertainment. That's why we don't spend a fortune hiring high-powered musicians we just use our own people, our own volunteers, because this isn't entertainment. If I want entertainment, I go buy a concert ticket and pay overly for it. We're just here to facilitate the shared expression of God, you're so awesome and we love you. And I always say, look, when we do that, there's a thousand different musical styles in the room. And when you're not in this room, you knock yourself out on whatever you like. I don't if it's country, if it's rap, if it's hip, knock yourself out. I got my playlist. I got about 2,000 songs on my playlist. Not church songs. I do my church songs in church. <laughs> Smooth jazz, classic funk. You know, that, that's my playlist. Get down on it. <laughs> but when I'm here, when I'm here, okay, I'm not here to be entertained. I'm here to join with you as we express to God, God, you are awesome. So, just a little practical point. If the enemy is trying to turn your worship experience into something that gets your undies all in a wad, <laughs> you've missed the point. See, it, uh, people sometimes say, I, I didn't like it, and I say, but it wasn't for you. <laughs> that wasn't for you. That was for God. This isn't about you. 
And even if somebody on the stage is a little off key or something, you can still praise God, my Lord. <laughs> and if we'll see worship as the place where we prepare for battle rather than making it a battleground, then we can close the gap between the things that we find it so easy to say and the things that God calls us to actually do. And when you close that gap, that's when you'll find fulfillment in your life. Because Jesus said, if you seek to gain your life, what do you do? You lose it. If you lose it for my causes, what happens? You find it. We have that on good authority. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to grow up as your children. Because children are wonderful, but not if they stay children for decades. So help us to see our corporate worship as a vital, necessary exercise for closing the gap between the things we say and the things that we do. Because a broken world needs us to close that gap. And until we close it, there'll be a gap in our own souls as well. So gracious God, you knew us when you started this project with us. Lead us in our next steps in Jesus' name. Amen.